Do you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How do you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. With working from home and trying to stay in touch with friends and family, a million pressing social issues, and an expectation to always be on 24-7. Sometimes you just need a moment to turn off and hit reset. That's when you reach for Coors Light. It's made to chill. My moment to chill is watching baseball, especially when the White Sox are on. I like to have a Coors Light beside me. It's a great beer to have watching the games as it's cool and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. And even the mountains on my cans turn blue telling me that it's time to hit reset. Sit back, relax, and hunker down for an evening of White Sox baseball. So when it's time for you to unwind, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light and the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Must be 21 years or older to enjoy. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And as always, celebrate responsibly. When you rely on the internet for everything, you need speed that can handle anything. And now, Xfinity delivers Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. Check out our amazing offers on internet and learn about the latest breakthrough from Xfinity. Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. That's more than enough speed to power all your devices and then some. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. Gig Wi-Fi requires gig speed and compatible x gateway. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to Sox Machine Live. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it is Thursday, June 14th, 2018, as the Chicago White Sox just wrapped up their series against the Cleveland Indians, losing today 5-2, But they did split the four-game set and continue to play good baseball in the month of June as they have a record in June of 8-6. and We'll recap the Cleveland Indians series and preview the upcoming series against the Detroit Tigers on this episode of Sox Machine Live. And hopefully another opportunity for the White Sox to pad their record in June against the Tigers this upcoming weekend. Joining me is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com and the co-host of the podcast, it's Jim Margulis. And hello, Jim. Are you surprised that the White Sox split with the Indians? By and large, yes, just because of the talent that the Indians rolled out. I expected the White Sox to show up well enough against Adam Plutko, but you know when you have Carrasco, who really overpowered the White Sox last year, and Trevor Bauer did the same, and um, and Mike Clevenger, who looked really good his first time against the Sox, uh, the chips were stacked against them, but they managed to come through, even though they did get outplayed in the uh, Bauer-Dylan Covey start. You know, they, they found a way to win, which I think is uh, a good characteristic. Just because we saw that before that, you know, the White Sox, especially early in the season before the bats went cold, uh, the season was marked by an inability to hit with runners in scoring position. Now we're starting to see some, you know, making 
the most out of a few opportunities. We've seen a couple of squeeze bunts succeed. We've seen a couple of, you know, just uh, like Kevin Smith and Charlie Tilson, like the hit tool guys, um, just being able to uh, shoot a single, you know, not, not overswing, just be able to poke one in the outfield for uh, a much needed hit. Trace Thompson did the same thing against Chris Sale start. So, uh, yeah, just it's a more watchable brand of baseball basically all around. Yeah, just to recap as far as the series pretty quick here, if you didn't get a chance to watch any of the action, in Game 1, the Cleveland Indians won 4 to nothing just because Carlos Carrasco was brilliant with 11 strikeouts. Lucas Giolito was okay. He wasn't terrible. He wasn't bad. He was, he was okay. Game 2, the White Sox won 5-1. to one. James Shields was better than okay. Only allowed one run and four hits against the Indians. In Game 3, Dylan Covey continues to surprise, this time out-dueling Trevor Bauer. I don't know, out-dueling may be too strong. Pitching well enough for the White Sox to beat Trevor Bauer, 3-2. to two. And in Game 4, the Indians won 5-2. to two. Carlos Rodon lasted five innings. As he's still trying to find his command and consistency, again, this was just a second start in 2018. The game was tied, and it was close late, but Chris Volstead missed his spot with two strikeouts against Jose Ramirez, who made him pay as he hit a two-run homer late, and the Indians ran away late in the game as they extend that lead to three runs. Mike Clevenger was really good for the Indians, striking out 11 over seven innings. He was really impressive for me. He's just got really nasty stuff. That combination, that 97-mile-per-hour fastball, and that slider mix is just awful for righties uh, to face Clevenger, and that's the reason why Clevenger is having what it looks like to be a breakout season for the Cleveland Indians in 2018. Uh, but again, the White Sox did split this series, and again, in the month of June so far, they are 8-6 and six against the Milwaukee Brewers, going on the road to Minneapolis and Boston and Cleveland, who has just owned the White Sox in the last few years. And we talked about this at great lengths on Monday, Jim, but I feel... It's the White Sox pitching efforts that are allowing them to enjoy this run of success. Cleveland only scored 12 runs in four games against the White Sox. And the White Sox have only allowed 18 runs in their last seven games. Obviously, this quality of pitching won't last. Or could it? Well, you know, the I, I think some of the, um, you know, like say Dylan Covey scattering 10 hits and allowing two runs, you know, that, that stuff can't quite hold up, but... I think the defense, by and large, has been improved, um, especially with um, you know Adam Engel. I think has made more plays in the outfield, and having Charlie Tilson and left over Nicky Delmonico, you still have Palkin, right? But you know that the outfield looks better. The infield's been playing pretty well, despite some errors, especially on on the right side from Moncada. He's had a couple plays he could have made, but you know third base and solid. Jose Abreu has been really good, uh, especially that uh, three six double play he turned. He made some great plays that you know, helped minimize some messes. So I, I think the defense is trending upwards, which can allow, um, in, in, uh, I should say with uh, Carlos Rodon too, having his strikeout stuff back, having him being able to take over an inning, even when he creates his own messes with the command problems and I, would, I should say control problems he had in the third. I think that helps the White Sox be a little bit better overall. And yeah, I think it's starters going deeper and allowing the bullpen, you know, the better parts of the bullpen to be there in situations where they're appropriate. Rick Renteria doesn't, you know, aside from today's game where I think Chris Volstad is the wrong choice in that situation, I'd rather see Hector Santiago get those mid innings or, or multiple inning mid leverage uh, outings rather than Volstad. I think I'd rather see Volstad be the mop up guy slash wrong, long relief guy. Um, I think the matchups have been pretty favorable and he's been able to get away with uh, um, 
you know, a, a minimum of relievers used, or at least a minimum of stretches when it comes to relievers used. So I think it's kind of a complimentary effort all around. And, and I imagine that there will be some snags where, uh, you know, Carlos Rodon, if he takes a while to get warmed up and if he's throwing his fastball early, you know, that could create a mess and he's down for nothing. And same thing with Shields. You know, his tendency to start slowly and, and Giolito's control still can abandon him. So, I, you know, for whatever reason, whether it's been luck, I, I think that's had a lot to do with it. Also, you know, better defense and um, better offense a little bit, or at least better offensive execution. I think it just creates a, I guess, comprehensive improvement, but the, the starting pitching is still wobbly enough to where it all takes is one bad first inning for entire night's plans to go awry. Sure. Yeah, I can I can see that. It's just that in the last 14 games, and even for a little bit longer than that, just this stretch in June has been pretty impressive on what the White Sox starting pitching has done. So I agree with you. I do not think this is going to last. Because yeah. if it does last, then it's I I don't want to give people like false hope. You know? Yeah, the walks have come down, though, I think. That's one big thing, I think. Aside from Giolito, the pitchers aren't getting in their own way as much. Yes, that's a good way of putting it. I'm not trying to give people false hope that, oh, the White Sox can continue this, and, hey, you know, if they keep playing at an 8-6 and stretch like this every 14 games, before you know it, they're going to be right at 500, and maybe just maybe... No, I don't want to do that to people, uh, because what's been impressive for me during this stretch is... I know you're mentioning the timely offense, Jim, but that's the only time that the offense has been executing because when they're not scoring runs, it's been pretty bad. And to zero in on three players, we're going to combine two of them first because Rick Renteria sat Tim Anderson and Yohan Mikata today. Uh, They both had pinch hit opportunities late in the fourth game of the series. But Renteria told the beat reporters that he thought both of them could take a mental break. In the last seven games, again, I know this is a very small sample size, but both Mikata and Anderson are in a slump. Mikata is hitting three for 26 in his last seven games with one home run. It was a solo shot, no walks, 13 strikeouts. So Mikata struck out half the time that he's at the plate this past week. Tim Anderson's not very much better. He's two for 20, zero extra base hits. With the one RBI, he's walked three times, so he's getting on base more frequently than Mikata, but he's also striking out a lot. He's got 10 strikeouts. And Jim, I know every hitter goes through a slump, and right now Anderson and Mikata are going through their slump, but their year-to-date batting splits are almost identical. Anderson is now hitting 229 with a 296 on base percentage and slugging 420 in 2018. Mikata is hitting 227 with a 298 on base percentage and slugging 412. It is a bit amazing to me that those two have almost identical batting splits. From watching their at bats and watching them go to the struggle right now, Jim, are you seeing anything from the league, from opposing pitchers making adjustments against Anderson and Mikata? I have a hard time separating it from the quality of pitching they've faced, especially over the last week. I mean, you have Chris Sale, David Price, Rick Porcello, Carlos Carrasco. Um, you know, Plutko is, yeah, they fared well against Plutko, or at least the offense did as a whole. But then, you know, come back with Trevor Bauer and um, Mike Clevenger, you know, and we saw Clevenger, you know, what he does to righties. 
So when I look at that, you know, kind of sample of pitchers, that's really unusual. And, and so, and yeah, I've, I've kind of had my def, uh, attention divided watching Matt Davidson struggle against, um, you know, the, the Cleveland righties and then watching, you know, seeing what Daniel Polka is doing and seeing what Charlie Tilson's doing. Like there's a lot of, I guess, a lot of different hitters to watch for different reasons. And it's just a very tough task against all these pitchers day after day, no days off, either, you know, kind of uh, figuratively or literally no days off. So, um, you know, it could be, especially Moncada, I would say, more than Anderson. I think Anderson, you know, had a nice run of four games before the Cleveland series where the righties were tougher on him. But, um, yeah, I think Moncada just might be a little bit um, worn out. Maybe, maybe not like physically, hmm. but more mentally, just more kind of losing control of the strike zone a little bit um you know getting out guessed um okay. getting getting a little bit beat on the corners too like uh you know uh, you know the he, he's been victimized by some unfavorable calls and i think just kind of everything snowballing on him a little bit so i think the day off i you know and, and you mentioned before i think in tweets that you know he could use a day off and it kind of looks that way to me just that he's being out guessed and he doesn't look like he's um yeah, does have, has a firm example of what he's attacking or um, anything like that. I think Anderson just got beat by righties, and that'll happen um, when you compare those two hitters. But it's just been an, an uncommonly strong stretch of starting pitching, especially for Anderson, that uh, goes against the strengths of you know whether it's um, uh, you know left-handed pitching or righties that don't have that big overpowering curveball. In Bauer's case and and Clevenger's case, they have that pitch. With Mancana, it when he's batting left-handed, teams are really attacking the inside corner against him. Is there anything that you would think that some type of adjustment that Mikata needs to make? I mean, early in the year, we thought he was too passive and he should be more aggressive, especially on first pitch fastballs. If it's in the wheelhouse, crush it. And we kind of saw this, we kind of saw Jose Abreu go the same thing where the league's adjustment was pound Jose Abreu on the inside corner and eventually Jose Abreu learned how to get his hands through the zone or lay off those pitches and they ended up being balls and at least foul him off and work work it where he would eventually get a ball that he can smash over the plate right now obviously as you mentioned the bad calls Mikata's just he's had no luck for him in this recent stretch where he's really starting to see his season splits go in the way other direction than it was before he was hitting the DL. Do you think that there is anything to that as far as the inside fastballs that maybe Mikata can make an adjustment when he's batting left-handed that he could find some more success? Well, I think we, we talked about it a couple weeks ago that, you know, when Mankata was struggling, it looked like they were coming at him soft away uh, right. when he was batting lefty and kind of rolling over a lot of pitches, hitting a lot of grounders to the right side. So, you know, potentially if he's trying to cover that weakness and the league adjusts, is, adjusts faster than uh, um, Moncada does, you know, just as he's trying to close up that outside corner, you know, they come at him in, 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 in. And I think the Abreu example is a good one, just that, you know, Abreu had to learn how to get the barrel uh, quicker to the inside corner. Um, uh, a is probably not there yet as a hitter, as a, as a hit tool. And also, you know, I, I think he's probably a bit too selective or, you know, especially two strikes when it comes to, um, you know, that corner, he's not somebody who swings a lot of junk, whereas a is more of a bad ball hitter. So I think, uh, he's not as inclined to ex what he feels is expanding the zone. And if he's really perhaps looking at that outside corner, covering it away, that inside corner might seem a bit bigger to him or, or maybe, 
you know, I guess further away from him than it is. And he might have a little bit of a, a warped perception of what inside pitches are strikes versus which ones are balls. And, you know, probably the, uh, the, the pitches inside aren't helping <laughs> the ones that he definitely can't hit that are called strikes, um, you know, aren't helping his confidence in that regard. So, yeah, I imagine it's a, uh, a league wide reckoning a little bit. Um, and, and that it's a gap for him to cover up because he was, you know, up until this point, up until the DL, uh, he was hitting, righties yep. pretty well you know I, I think he was it wasn't a weakness for him and so i think yeah it's probably something where all right let's go at him slow way slow way slow way slow way and just as it looks like he's starting to get wise to it come back at him inside and you know throw the injury knocking off perhaps his timing a little bit throwing some bad luck from the umpires and he's probably just has a lot to cover right now and he has to figure out as a hitter you know which one he wants to cover more and he probably should go back to the fastball it's just something that I've noticed watching games that teams are not afraid to attack you on Makata with that fastball and the, the right-handed pitchers that could throw a really good two-seam fastball. They've had a lot of success, at least catching Makata looking at strike three, trying to bust him inside with that two-seamer. With Tim Anderson, the my eyeball note, and I'm going to have to look at StatCast and maybe Brooks Baseball Gym, he's swinging at a lot of sliders outside of the zone. And that seems to be the bread and butter right now for right-handers going against Tim Anderson. Two strikes, slider away, and you're going to get Tim Anderson swinging away. So I think that yeah, that might be a byproduct of him being better at laying off high fastballs. Okay, you know perhaps he has his sights oh, set lower. Right. Yeah, because he and, used to strike out a lot on the high fastball. Yeah, he's drawn more walks in that regard, but you know perhaps he has his sights set lower, and so he's ready to cover that more and just is you know biting off more than he can chew. No, good point. The third batter is Matt Davidson against teams not called the Kansas City Royals. Matt Davidson's hitting 26 for 145. That is a 179 batting average. His on-base percentage is 308 and he's slugging 317. So that's a 179, 308, 317 slash line. That is not good. What's not good for Davidson is that the White Sox don't face Kansas City again until July 13th to the 15th. So he's got another month before he sees the Royals, and I'm sure he will be very successful that weekend. But my opinion is, Jim, Davidson needs to figure something out to get back on track. And I know many White Sox fans say give him as many opportunities as possible this year. And I agree with them because you need to find out what Matt Davidson is about. My concern is that his season numbers, except for the walk rate, are a mirage. That they are very, very heavy on the Royals as far as his, his success against the Kansas City Royals. Outside of the Royals, Davidson is being dominated. And I wonder from your piece this morning, where you, where you were talking about how the White Sox are going to handle the outfield when Avisil Garcia comes back. And it sounds like the way that he's playing with the Charlotte Knights during his rehab stint, uh, that could be as soon as next week. Uh, so we're going to have some roster shuffling going on for the White Sox when Avi comes back. But when Avi comes back and you still have Daniel Polka sharing time at DH and we've talked about a great length that that's probably the best role for him. How does Matt Davidson fit in this lineup? Well, you know, he's another guy who I would point to the, you know, he also came off the DL with back spasms and then faced a really tough run of pitchers. So he's somebody who might be kind of a bump slayer as a, as a hmm. hitter and not necessarily a bad thing. You know, it works for some teams and some fits, but I think when you do face this line of, 
you know, sale price, Porcello, Carrasco, Bauer, Clevenger, uh, especially the, you know, the pow- overpowering righties, um, you know, it's not going to set up well for him, especially if his timing's off with the, with the back problem. So, um, I would give him a series like he's somebody and he and, um, you know, the, the hitters we've talked about, I'd like to see them against, uh, this upcoming Detroit series no spoiler alerts, but like Jordan Zimmerman coming off the DL, I would like to see some good at bats against him, some good, either good barreling or good, uh, patience, you know, laying off junk or stuff out of the zone because he doesn't seem like somebody who should be able to push them around. And that might be something of a, of a recalibration and, uh, coming against more pedestrian pitching. So that's what I'm hoping for to see from this weekend. But uh, the, the stretch of pitching, the fact that they've, you know, been 500 better against such a tough lineup of pitchers, I'm, you know, I'm ultimately just ready to take it however, whatever form it comes. And then when it comes to slumps and, you know, extended offers, uh, cut them some slack in that regard. Yeah, because that is the amazing thing, as you point out, with the White Sox' recent streak of success. They're doing this with the offense overall performing poorly. Yes, they are getting timely hits, but in the last seven games, the most effective hitters for the White Sox have been Charlie Tilson and Kevin Smith. Uh, Jose Abreu's been able to sprinkle in some extra base hits, obviously with his daily doubles, and he had a home run today against Mike Clevenger. Uh, but he's hitting five for 26 in the last week against the superior pitching that the White Sox are facing. So it's not like the White Sox in the month of June are hitting on all cylinders. And, you know, they're winning games because they are hitting the ball timely, getting timely offense, and the little runs that they are scoring are enough thanks to the great pitching. Uh, I guess, Jim, I look at that in a light that it could be better for the White Sox, that this isn't the best that they're going to play all year. And if you are like me, sorry, if you're like me, (laughs) wanting to see how long the White Sox can keep this streak of play up, uh, I think it gives one hope that maybe this recent play can last a little bit longer. And this is where I come in, Jim, where I say I'm still very hopeful that they could finish at least 500 in the month of June, in their June games. And the fact that they got through this tough two-week stretch and they're at eight and six, I'm I'm feeling pretty confident they can do that. Are you feeling as confident in that? Well, I think this series uh, against Detroit should tell us something because, I mean, um, not to preview it too much, but uh, it's kind of a tough tough month overall because they'll come back against the Indians after the Detroit series. Um, they have the A's who are playing all right. And they have the Twins who, you know, they've seen plenty of. So it, it's just, I think, a tough month overall. And um, when it comes to a team that is out-talented in a lot of regards, um, yeah, it's just the fact that they're winning not with a lot, but, you know, considering in the first two months they had a lot go right or like when they – uh, you know, put together rallies one after another. They still lost because of whether it was terrible pitching, whether they couldn't get the hit, whether their their plate approach is just uh, crumbled with runners in scoring position. Um, yeah, I would take this stretch over what they showed the first two months, and I think it is a more comprehensively good baseball. But I, I don't think they're out of the clear. I think maybe that last week of June is when it's a bit more normal. They face the um, yeah, they face the Twins who have had their problems. They face the Rangers, the Reds. <laughs> it's just uh, yeah, they have the Royals going the All Star break. So this is really the toughest part of their season in a lot of ways, um, just because they don't have the talent, they don't have uh, off days, and uh, you know they don't have their best lineup yet. And I think that will come when you know guys are fully healthy, when Mancada's back rolling, and when you know, fingers crossed, Elo Jimenez comes up. We're six weeks away from the trade deadline, Jim, for Cleveland. 
where do you think they need to fix things for you to feel comfortable that they could be a World Series contender? Well, I think their bullpen is the the first point. And then it seems like their corners are a bit weak. Um, you know, Lindor and Ramirez getting a long way. But I wasn't a big fan of the Alonzo signing just because I think, uh, you know, Santana gives them something on an everyday basis. You know, maybe Brandon Geyer back helps. But it does seem like, you know, whether it's right field, first base, um, that, that seems like the biggest issue of just not getting – a well-rounded offense, you know, they can be platooned against or they can be, you know, matched up against and they can be knocked out with uh, bullpen changes. So it, it's, it still seems like they're an incomplete team. Um, yeah, they don't have the bullpen that they've had. And then also I think they do miss a little bit of Carlos Santana being there every day and giving them good at-bats from either side. I think they were just, I don't know if it was just trying to be cute, but they, I think the thought process signing Yonder Alonso and letting Carlos Santana walk, Jim, was maybe Alonzo could be a cheaper well he was much cheaper but could be a cheaper version of Carlos Santana that he yeah. give a similar production for a much lower price point they've done that before and i think that was the kind of the knock on the um the mid aughts indians you know the ones right. that fell short against the uh, the Sox in 05 and you know kind of had some uh, flirtations with the pennant here and there, but never quite got there. And, and, you know, they're a good team on paper. And I think they made a lot of sense, um, sabermetrically, uh, you know, they, they won the Pythag pennant. That was the, kind of, you know, when, when Shapiro won a executive of the year, it's like, yeah, congratulations on your you know, Pythagorean record, but it didn't mean anything. And I think, you right. know, sometimes they build good teams on paper. They, they try to build cheap platoons, but I think, you know, when it comes to everyday players, and I think we've seen this, you know, with the, Jose Abreu, Mitch Moreland argument at first base, the one that Buster Olney started by putting Mitch Moreland uh, over and, and Justin Smoke over Jose Abreu uh, in the all-star balloting. It, it is tough to find everyday players. And when you have one, uh, I think it sometimes is a bit easy to take it for granted and think that you can platoon your way around it because when the platoon doesn't work or half the platoon gets hurt, I think then the offense is a little bit incomplete and it's hard to make up for that. You know, they do have Ramirez and Lindor doing a lot of heavy lifting and I don't think they need all that much to support them, but you know, probably maybe getting Brandon Geyer back helps a little bit. I don't know, man. The Minnesota twins are blowing a golden opportunity. Yeah. I think the Indians can be had. I didn't think so before the year, but I believe it now, but the way that the twins are playing, no chance. The Indians are still going to win this division but if I were them and you still want to snap this World Series drought, go get some bats because this offense is Brantley, Lindor, and Ramirez. And as soon as you navigate around those three, Encarnacion is not really scaring, even though he has 16 home runs in the year. Um, Jason Kipnis, I don't know what happened to that guy. Yeah. Uh, you know, the catching situation isn't all that great. They just cut Melky Cabrera, uh, Bradley Zimmer. It hasn't really panned out in center field the way that they were hoping. It's just, as you mentioned, Jim, this is a pretty incomplete team. I'm not feeling very confident in their ability to make the World Series, but hey, I I still think they're going to win the American League Central. It's just, I think they could be one of those teams that can maybe make a semi-big move before July 31st and getting to bat because the way that they're going to set up the rotation with Kluber, Carrasco, Bauer, and Clevenger. If these guys continue to pitch it the way that they're pitching, they're going to be a very tough out in the postseason. But again, it really depends on the bullpen if they can score enough runs yeah. supporting that. Andrew Miller too. Staff. So no, if he's got to get able, healthy. Yeah, if he's able to come back, you know that could be a huge addition. But yeah, if he's if 
been worked a lot and has, I think it's knee problems. Um, right. you know, that doesn't necessarily go away without, you know, greater intervention. Right. Before we preview the upcoming series against the Detroit Tigers, a quick word from our sponsor, SeatGeek. Buying tickets can be complicated and confusing, but there is a better way to buy with SeatGeek. SeatGeek is the smartest, easiest way to get tickets to every type of live event. Whether you're searching for a last-minute deal, planning a night out with friends, or need to find the perfect gift, SeatGeek helps you find the best seats at the best prices, fully guaranteed. There's nothing quite like being there in person, and SeatGeek will get you closer to the action for a great value. As I mentioned before, I love using SeatGeek to buy Chicago White Sox tickets. I use SeatGeek to get tickets for Jim Tomey Bobblehead Day, that's August 11th, and also get tickets for the Angels series in September where I'll get to see Mike Trout and then cry to myself as Shohei Otani is probably not going to be playing in that series anymore. Oh, sad. But if you're looking for some great deals this weekend as the White Sox face the Detroit Tigers, and it is Father's Day weekend, uh, SeatGeek has some great deals going on. On Friday, tickets start as $13. On Saturday, tickets are as cheap as $18. And on Father's Day, if you're still looking for something to do, tickets start at $10 on SeatGeek. And the best part is Sox Machine listeners can save in a couple of ways. One, if you've never used SeatGeek before, download the SeatGeek app onto your smartphone, use promo code SOXMACHINE, and you get to save $20 off on your first purchase. Or if you have used SeatGeek before, use promo code MACHINE to save $10 off on any Major League Baseball ticket purchase. You could use it in June, July, in August, or September. Use it whenever. Again, that promo code is MACHINE for $10 off your Major League Baseball ticket purchases or SOXMACHINE to save $20 off your first purchase. And now we preview the upcoming series as the Detroit Tigers come to the South Side. Last time they were coming to the South Side, we were very hopeful that the White Sox could be a winning weekend or something like that. But that obviously didn't happen back on home opening day. Not trying to bring back bad memories of this season. But hopefully things will be a lot better for the Chicago White Sox this weekend. Detroit is 31-37. and 37. They are five and a half games back of the Cleveland Indians for first place in the American League Central. Currently in third place, they're a half game back of the Minnesota Twins. So they're keeping the Twins honest uh, to be second place in the American League Central. I think they're playing over their head, Jim. And as far as the pitching probables, I think this matches up well for the White Sox. Friday night's game, this is a 7.10 p.m. Central Time game. It's Mike Fierce against Ronaldo Lopez. On Saturday, a 1.10 p.m. Central Time start, it is Jordan Zimmerman against Lucas Giolito. And on Sunday, it is Blaine Hardy against James Shields. That's also a 1.10 p.m. Central Time start. And as I mentioned, Jim... I think the pitching matchup really favors the White Sox, especially how well they've been pitching as of late. How do you feel about the White Sox chances in this series against the Tigers? Well, I think the White Sox and Tigers pitching are kind of similar in, in, in the way that they're getting surprising starting pitching from unlikely sources. I mean, Blaine Hardy was a spot starter called up and, and uh, to replace Francisco Liriano. He's held his own. Fires has kind of turned it around. Um, the White Sox got him pretty good last time out, but he's had three good starts in a row since then. Um, you know, Zimmerman's back, and we'll see how he looks. But, uh, you know, considering that uh, they, it looked like an emergency when they lost Zimmerman and lost Liriano, they really haven't been lacking for starting pitching. You know, it's, it's been surprising in that regard. So when it comes to the on-paper matchups, they look all right. But um, we've seen Fires beat the Sox before. We've seen Hardy beat the Sox before this year. Um, the good news is they're they're not 
the pitchers we mentioned before, the sales and prices and bowers and so forth, these guys are more hittable. So I would like to see more good contact, especially from the struggling hitters we mentioned before. Um, this should be something that lines up fairly well for them. Um, they just have to you know, lay off the high fastballs from fires to start out. Do you feel the season that Detroit is having, 31 and 37, five and a half games back at Cleveland, that record-wise, that's the season that the 2018 White Sox should be having? Uh, not quite. I mean, I think somewhere in between, you know, especially. I don't think they should have, uh, you know, lost twice as many games as they won the first two months of the season. I think that was an aberration, but... Uh, based on the performances we've seen, based on the injuries and who they've missed and, you know, getting nothing from Avi Garcia and Nicky Delmonico and, um, you know, having basically the entire plan B outfield, starting plan B outfield uh, in play and and the, you know, Giolito and Fulmer not showing much, it does seem like, you know, they, they are nearly as bad as they should be. You know, maybe a win total in the high 20s versus the low 20s, but not much more than that based on who they've missed. I just wonder a lot when watching the Detroit Tigers if that is the season that the 2018 White Sox preseason-wise could be having. Yeah. Well, I mean, like, if you think about it last year, they blew by everybody in the tanking standings just by the season sell-off and, you know, just really plunging in in August and September, whereas the White Sox had had a nice finish their season and, you know, ended up – getting the the fourth overall pick you know when it looked like they might be a one or two so you know there might be some some luck evening out there and that the white Sox played a bit over their heads last year and the uh tigers just kind of cashed in and were worse than their talent on paper and this year is maybe a bit of a reversal in that case where the tigers are playing a bit over their heads the white Sox are playing worse and you know by the end of the year they might be in the same neighborhood win wise yeah the tigers are 21 and 17 at home I think that's a big part of it, right? That they're playing over their heads. They're playing that well at home, where the White Sox are 11 to 20. They did start two and 12, so the White Sox are nine and eight in their last 17 home games. So that's a thumbs up, playing much better at home. But you know, whenever I look at the Tigers and especially in the win-loss record, like looking at the standings, I, I often wonder to myself, man, I maybe that's the season that the 2018 White Sox should be having because it, obviously at 31 and 37, I don't think the Tigers are going to finish above 500, but that's the type of year as far as playing at that pace where you could be really excited about the possibility that 2019 could be the breakout year for the White Sox rather than 2020 and it would make this offseason a lot more interesting. Maybe that could still happen for the White Sox, especially on how they've been playing as of late. But I'm hoping this weekend that the White Sox sweep the Tigers so I can feel a lot better about the two teams' possession yeah, positions I'll be, in the standings. I'll be curious about what they look like without uh, Miguel Cabrera. I mean, he's yeah. been missed. I mean, he's missed. They've been without him for a while theoretically because he's he's missed. Uh, he missed 30 games before he he tore his bicep tendon. But still, he was around. Um, still a very uh, commanding presence in the order. He had a 395 OBP even at half power. So, I mean, he does give the, uh, he, he, he was the Tigers best at bats. And yeah, I wonder if there's going to be a trickle down effect of sorts, just not having that bat in the order, even if it's only around half the time. On the other hand, you see the, what the Mariners have done without Robinson Cano and maybe I know, isn't <laughs> one, that amazing? Uh, yeah. One veteran isn't all that important in a, in a nine man lineup. Yeah, bad news, Manny Machado and Bryce Harper. I think teams are going to be scared giving out 10-year contracts. 
even if they are 27 years old, 27, 26 years old, especially with Miguel Cabrera and how much money he's owed to the Tigers. You mentioned Robinson Cano. He's still got quite a few years left on that deal, and it appears that Seattle may be better off without Robinson Cano, believe it or not. Uh, it's just it, – it is fascinating on how how those two contracts – Albert Pujols as well, thinking about him, on, on how that could influence Harper and Machado. I still think they get really long contracts, but uh, 10-year deals may not be a wise decision uh, for Major League Baseball teams. Uh, yeah, it's just fascinating on how well Seattle has been playing. Just absolutely shocking. And uh, it'll be interesting to see if they could keep it up. But hopefully, after this weekend, when we talk to you guys on Monday, we are talking about another successful series for the White Sox, and they could continue padding this June record on their way to at least a 500 month. Uh, that'd be absolutely terrific. Uh, before we sign off on this edition of Sox Machine Live, we want to tell you that we are going to be having an after party on. This upcoming Saturday at the Ballpark Pub. So some of you are coming with Jim and I uh, to the White Sox-Tigers game Saturday afternoon. After the game, we're all meeting up at the Ballpark Pub. So if you already have tickets for Saturday or if you can't make it because you have other plans but you're free Saturday night, come meet us at the Ballpark Pub. It's at 514 West Pershing Road. That's on Pershing and Normal. It's just three blocks south of the stadium uh, based on a three hour game time. We should be there by 4.30. Uh, we'll have a round table discussion at six o'clock. Uh, we have some Hawk books, his uh, biography uh, to give out. Uh, thanks to our friend Noah, who's going to bring some copies as well. Uh, and it'll be a great time. We're co-hosting this with the Section 108 guys. So if you like to drink beer and chill with other White Sox fans, this is the event for you. So again, that's Saturday night, starting around 4.30. The roundtable discussion will start around 6 o'clock at the Ballpark Pub at 514 West Pershing Road. And hopefully we get a chance to see some of you on Saturday night. And that will do it for this edition of Sox Machine Live. Thank you so much to those that listen to us on the live stream on Mixer.com slash Sox Machine. Every episode of Sox Machine Live is uploaded into the podcast feed, which you can subscribe to the show via iTunes, Spotify, the Google Play Music Store, and Audioboom.com slash Sox Machine. Sox Machine Live is a production of SoxMachine.com, your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Have a terrific weekend and look forward to talking to you guys on Monday. When your entire life is online, you need more than just speed from your internet. Xfinity gives you reliable in-home Wi-Fi coverage, plus protection from Wi-Fi network threats. Check out our amazing offers on Xfinity Internet. You'll get fast speed and Wi-Fi coverage you can count on. Plus, get advanced security free with the XFi Gateway, so you can keep the connected devices in your home protected from network threats. Just log in and activate through the Xfinity app. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.